0: P.F.K. in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson won't be seated on the Supreme Court until late June, but we're still thinking about the significance of her confirmation as America's first black female Supreme Court justice and of that horrible confirmation hearing she endured we have UC Irvine law professor and nation contributor, Michelle Goodwin coming up on the show to reflect. Also, many proposals to reform the police were made after the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, the largest protest movement in American history. But the problem, Irwin Chemerinsky argues, is not just the police. The Supreme Court has empowered the police and subverted civil rights. Irwin is dean of the law school at UC Berkeley and author of many books, most recently Presumed Guilty. But first, what the Democrats have done wrong and what they've done right in American history. For that, we turn to Michael Kazin. He teaches history at Georgetown. He edited Dissent Magazine for 10 years. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and The Nation. He's also written six books. The new one is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. Last time we talked here, it was about democratic socialism in America. Michael Kazin, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, today we're not going to talk about politics for the last week. We're going to talk about politics for the last century. If you had to describe Democrats before FDR in a single sentence, what would you say?
1: I would say they believed in
0: egalitarian whiteness,
1: that Uh, They were representing and tried to represent uh, the interests of majority of ordinary white men. And they did so successfully at some time. But clearly they were, like my friend Mike Tomaski has said in a recent book, a terrible party for everybody else, for the most part, for Native Americans, um, for black people um, and for many women as well. Even though, of course, a lot of women supported their men in the Democratic Party as well. But um, really, the Democratic Party that we think of as a modern, more progressive party, more liberal party, is a party that really begins to form uh, in a really serious way in the 1930s.
0: And where does your personal history with the Democrats begin?
1: Well, I I seem to remember, I used to talk to my uh, third grade um, <laughs> friends about why Adlai Stevenson uh, was a good candidate in 1956, but... I do remember very well that I handed out leaflets for John Kennedy in 1960 on the streets of my hometown, Englewood, New Jersey, which is uh, uh, just a short bus ride from George Washington Bridge uh, uh, next to New York City. Uh, and my parents were devout liberal Democrats, like lots of uh, Jews from New York in that area were. And so many ways, uh, even though I'm a leftist and uh, a Democratic Socialist, I've also been a capital D Democrat for most of my life.
0: Have you always supported the Democratic candidate for
1: president? Uh, not in 1968, when I was in a group uh, you know well called Students for Democratic Society uh, when I was in college. And then uh, the Vietnam War turned me against the Democrats. Of course, the Vietnam War was a war being prosecuted by Democrats. Lyndon Johnson and the Democratic candidate in 68, Hubert Humphrey. So I joined a march uh, in Boston calling for uh, people to vote uh, in the streets, vote with your feet. Not to vote, in other words, uh, but to demonstrate instead. In 19, uh, uh, 1980, excuse me, um, even though I certainly you know, preferred Jimmy Carter to a degree to Ronald Reagan in that election, uh, I was so fed up with Jimmy Carter's lousy presidency, his helping to ignite a new Cold War with the Soviet Union, uh, that I voted for a candidate most people probably never heard of, uh, named Barry Commoner, a uh, left-wing environmentalist uh, who ran as a candidate for a new party called the Citizens Party who got all of, two, all of a quarter of a million votes.
0: Our modern political history, as you say, begins really in 1936 with FDR's huge re-election victory that year. You call it the most complete victory in the history of partisan presidential elections. How did he do it?
1: He did it by putting together a coalition. Uh, a majority coalition, which is how Democrats uh, become a majority party put together for the first time, both white people and black people, because 1936, the first presidential election where a majority of black voters who were able to vote in the South, of course, most could not. For the first time, a majority of black voters vote for the Democratic candidate instead of the Republican candidate. And they've done so in every election since. Also, the uh, union movement was surging in 1936. Uh, unions were organized in in the auto uh, plants and steel mills and elsewhere, and most of the unions that were being formed did support FDR uh, and and Democrats across the board, uh, and that helped a lot too. Also. A lot of people who just out of a job, who thought the Republican Party was the party that caused the Great Depression, voted for Democrats as well, uh, and this was true of rural voters as well as uh, urban voters. So really, it was a really, real cross section of uh, of Americans. And as a result, the Democrats had massive majorities in both houses of Congress and won every state except for Maine uh, and Vermont.
0: And the next big transformative moment came in 1964: LBJ versus Goldwater. LBJ's victory, then, it's still worth recalling. LBJ got 61.1%. That's actually more than Reagan got in 1980. His victory margin was 16 million votes. The new Senate for LBJ had 68 Democrats, more than two-thirds. So what can you do with a landslide of that proportion? You can pass Medicare. You can pass the war on poverty and you can pass the voting rights act the late lamented voting rights act this was a huge transformative moment for american uh, history but in 1966 in the midterms uh, it was a disaster for the for the democrats and for lbj what went wrong what happened to the massive majority supermajority that johnson had created
1: a couple of things first of all the vietnam war uh, was becoming Unpopular. It wasn't yet unpopular among the majority, but it's becoming unpopular, including among a lot of liberal Democrats who didn't vote for Republicans, but some of them sat out the election. Also, the white backlash—backlash against the civil rights movement, against the Civil Rights Act. Uh, George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, uh, was becoming more popular among uh, a lot of white working-class Democrats, not just in the South but in the North as well. And the war on poverty was seen as, by a lot of Americans, as giving money to poor people who weren't working. One of the lessons that uh, Lyndon Johnson failed to learn from uh, his mentor, Franklin D. Roosevelt, was that the main programs that Roosevelt passed uh, and signed and Democrats uh, enacted in the New Deal were programs that were perceived as helping uh, the large majority of Americans. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, in the 1960s, the main programs that most people heard about, that the Great Society enacted, with the exception of Medicare, were programs that were perceived as helping only a minority of Americans. And of course, the anti-poverty program, though it helped all poor Americans to a degree, uh, was perceived again as helping mostly mostly African-Americans. So um, white voters who felt that you know, this was supposed to be their party and supposed to be their government, why was it helping people who were not like them? And and that unfortunately helped to produce a backlash, and that backlash was one of the things which helped to whittle down the Democratic majorities uh, in Congress in 1966, and in the end elected Richard Nixon president in 1968.
0: So 1968 historic event when the incumbent Democrat was forced to withdraw from his own reelection campaign by anti-war activists, including you, including me. So. The story of 1968 in the the Democratic National Convention in Chicago is well known. I knew nothing about the Democratic platform of 1968 until I read your book. Yeah, what's astonishing
1: uh, is that the Democratic platform 68 was more uh, left wing, uh, more of a sort of uh, social democratic platform uh, than than the Democratic platform had been ever before, including in 1936 when Franklin Roosevelt won this. Uh, landslide re-election, including in '64 when Lyndon Johnson won this huge landslide. It included, you know, uh, national health insurance for all, uh, guaranteed housing, guaranteed job for everybody who needed one. But it was completely overshadowed by the Vietnam War, by the split in the party over the war. Uh, Hubert Humphrey didn't even mention it in his in his acceptance speech. Uh, He was so concerned to try to knit the party together somehow, uh, which of course he failed to do. You know, it's one of the lost opportunities. The Vietnam War really. Uh, ended the Democratic Party's dominance in in American uh,
0: politics. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965, as you say, caused this white backlash, especially turning the white South Republican. The last Democrat to carry the South was Jimmy Carter in 1976. And now there's a white man's party. A majority of whites have voted Republican for the last 50 years Uh, And then there's the party of everybody else, the Democrats. What can you tell us about this?
1: The Republicans are the white Christian party. Now, you know, they picked up gains among Latinx people in the last election. Some votes among, pick up some votes among African-Americans, and Asian-Americans. But basically, it's overwhelmingly a party of white Christians, especially away from both coasts. But, you know, if you can unite that group, which is still a majority of the population, you can do pretty well, especially with the way the Senate is organized. And so many predominantly white states, of course, have the same number of senators as uh, states like California and New York. At the same time, the Democrats are a broader coalition uh, racially uh, in terms of class as well and education. But uh, that makes it difficult, I think, for Democrats to agree uh, on what they stand for and to agree on one leader who they all uh, get behind. Uh, that's also uh, been a problem. Uh, I think the Democrats do best when they promote uh, universal programs, when they devote programs that... Uh, the large majority of Americans can benefit from. So security, Medicare, uh, national health insurance, uh, minimum wage, and um, aid education. Uh, some of the programs in the Build Back Better bill, omnibus bill, which of course is not, is not going to pass because of two senators, uh, Democratic senators not willing to do away with the filibuster for this bill. But in the end, you know, to become a majoritarian party, which of course the Democrats always want to be, that's how you win elections in an ongoing way, I think you have to advance uh, majoritarian programs. It doesn't mean you can't talk about other programs as well. Uh, You have to talk about racial justice, you have to talk about gender justice, but the programs that you put out front, I think, and that you try to get people, uh, especially the swing voters in the middle of the electorate aren't sure in any given election, which party they're gonna vote for. I think those are the programs, the, the universal programs that will win them over. And that is, unfortunately, a two-party system, how power is won.
0: And the Democrats' next big chance to restore an FDR 1936-type strategy came with the financial meltdown of, ni- of 2007 and 8, which led to the electing of Obama and another Democratic sweep of Congress. Democrats gained eight Senate seats. There were two independents, so they had 59 seats in the Senate. We said it's 1936 all over again. It's 1964 all over again. Obama can be the new FDR. Uh, And then he put all his capital into the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Was that a mistake? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, I go back and forth on that. He wanted to do
1: one big thing. And uh, uh, the ACA, at least as originally drawn up, was one big thing. And of course, it's proved to be popular. It's still on the books. And it's a You know, it's a step towards uh, what you and I would like, which is, you know, national health insurance, Medicare for all in one form or another. And I think uh, American social policy doesn't usually operate with one huge, massive, you know, reform. Um, Even Social Security didn't cover a lot of people when it was first passed in the mid-1930s. And so I think it was a good idea to pass uh, um, Obamacare. Part of the problem, though, was that there was no big movement behind it. Uh, as there was, for example, behind Social Security. Uh, A lot of people, even more Democrats, wanted some sort of help for people who were older. There were all kinds of movements to do that before Social Security passed. Similarly, the Wagner Act, National Labor Relations Act in in, in 1935, uh, giving the government power over running union elections and uh, uh, punishing employers for unfair labor practices. There was a huge union movement that was surging, uh, which, which made that possible. That wasn't true for Obamacare. That's one of the reasons I think why it was difficult to pass, because there wasn't a real pressure on a lot of people, even Democrats in many places to pass it. And also, I think uh, Obama lost the chance to be um, the kind of left wing populist that uh, that FDR was in many ways. Uh, you know, he believed he believed in his famous uh, speech in the 2004 Democratic Convention in Boston, uh, where he introduced himself to most Americans. talked about there's no red America, no blue America. He was he believed in his heart, I think, in compromise, in bipartisanship, in in bringing Americans together across these lines. and you know, Republicans weren't buying it. <laughs> and uh, it took them a long time to realize that. And by the time he realized it, it, the Democrats had lost their majorities.
0: One of the most striking changes in the party system over the last century is the way women have ended up as Democrats and men have ended up as Republicans. I think that it, it's hard to remember the last time a Democratic candidate won a majority of male voters, certainly not in the last 50 years. There's this sort of gendering of our politics, whereas the politics of caring is feminine and the politics of personal responsibility is is masculine. So the Democrats rely on turning out women. Is this our future?
1: I mean, as long as there is a gender split uh, culturally uh, in our country, uh, some would argue biologically, you know, between people who have children and people who don't. Issues like abortion are going to be big issues. Uh, women, of course, are more pro uh, choice than they are pro life. Uh, men are more 50 50, depending on the polls. Uh, women are active in both pro life and pro choice movements. But I think that issue does tend to, to help Democrats as well. So, you know, as long as those, as quote, women's issues uh, are seen as issues that Democrats more, care more about, uh, I think the gender split will exist. But it really didn't begin to happen until the 1960s. Before then, actually, women voted more Republican than men did because they were more conservative uh, and there were uh, many fewer of them were in labor unions. Uh, and, that, and most people in labor unions voted Democratic at the time.
0: So you end your book in Las Vegas on election night in 2018 at Caesars Palace Hotel. Wonderful finale. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, well, actually, uh, full disclosure, my son... Danny was the uh, campaign manager for the Democrat running for the Senate. Uh, Jackie Rosen was elected in 2018. So I, I I don't usually hang out at Caesars Palace, though. <laughs> you know, right? The uh, center of the Democratic Party uh, in Las Vegas and really the engine of the Democratic Party in the state is, is a culinary workers local, which is mostly in, in Las Vegas and Reno, the big the casino and entertainment uh, tourist centers uh, in Nevada. And and they are quite a remarkable union. Uh, they First of all, they have you know something like fifty thousand members. Uh, they represent almost all the workers in the major casinos and hotels in Las Vegas and most of them in Reno as well. They have a great health care plan. Uh, they have plans to teach you know people English. A lot of a lot of the workers are immigrants uh, from lots of other countries. Though majority are Latinx uh, from one country to another, Latin America. Uh, but they also may have managed to work out this uh, quite <laughs> amazing. Plank in their provision, I should say, in their contracts with the major hotels in Las Vegas, where they, they get paid leave for a couple of weeks during election campaigns to go canvass for candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's quite remarkable. I don't know any of the union in America that has that provision in their in their contract. Maybe others do. I just don't know of it. And of course, that means that they are really uh, essential to Democrats winning in Nevada. And Nevada is a swing state. It's a purple state. Uh, Democrats have been winning it in the last few elections, but Republicans won it for a long time under Nixon. Reagan. They won it pretty easily. Um, And so Harry Reid, the late uh, majority leader, former majority leader of, uh, of the Democrats, sort of cobbled together this connection between the Democrats and the culinary workers in Nevada about 20 years ago. And uh, it's held up until now. And that's the kind of thing I think Democrats need more of. They need, first of all, unions have to grow and and, uh, to help working people generally, and also to help Democrats, uh, because unions tend to uh, support Democrats and Democrats tend to support union demands. Especially when unions are strong, as they are in Las Vegas and Nevada generally, but also because that connection to the working class population, organized working class population, is really essential to rebuild, I think, a majority coalition. Because most Americans, after all, are working class. They did not graduate from college. Uh, They have jobs, earning wages, and that should be the future of the Democratic Party.
0: Michael Kazin. His new book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. Michael, thanks for talking with us today. This was great. Thank you, John. It's the same old story, this is Living in the USA, and I'm John Weiner, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson won't be sworn in as a Supreme Court Justice until the end of the current term when Stephen Breyer steps down, and that won't be until late June or early July. But that hasn't stopped a lot of us from thinking about the meaning and significance of her confirmation and of that horrible confirmation hearing that she endured. For comment, we turn to Michelle Goodwin. She's Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine, where she's also the founder and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy and its Reproductive Justice Initiative. She's been published in the New York Times, Salon, Politico, and The Nation. And she's host and executive producer of the podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. Last time she was here, we talked about her experiences of racism in daily life in Minneapolis before she came to Irvine. Michelle Goodwin, welcome back.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you, John.
0: Well, many discussions of the Supreme Court on this podcast start with the Dred Scott case or maybe Brown versus Board of Education. But you open your new piece for the nation with an 1873 case called Bradwell versus Illinois. That one was not on my exam. What was it?
2: It's not been on the exam for most people. Sadly, it's a case that is a bit obscure, but nonetheless important to U.S. jurisprudence and law. It's a case that involved a woman who wanted to become an attorney. She wanted to be able to practice with her husband. But there was a state law that forbade women from becoming attorneys. And the case was challenged all the way to the Supreme Court because she wanted to become an attorney. She wanted to be able to practice. She wanted to be able to have all of the opportunities as a lawyer, as her husband had. And at the United States Supreme Court, they upheld this law that banned women from becoming lawyers in the state of Illinois. And the court used the most misogynistic language to uphold this case. They talked about how it was important for her uh, to take care of her husband, uh, how it was important that women uh, have their roles in the home, and. Undergirding all of this was the sense that women lacked the capacity to reason. Women lacked the capacity, as the court said, for forensic strife. Uh, And then the court justified its sexism and this ban by saying that even though they didn't have precedent, for the sense that women lacked capacity to think and to reason. They said it came from the laws of nature, as if they had gotten a phone call directly from mother nature or from God to say that women should never become attorneys. And that I think is really important to the story about Judge Jackson and women in general, because it's not that women didn't want to take on these roles. It's that men in power barred them from doing so.
0: Please remind us, how many Black people have served as Supreme Court justices since the beginning of the Republic, and what proportion of them were Clarence Thomas? Well,
2: this is such a great question. While in the 233-year history of the United States Supreme Court, there have only been two Black justices to serve, Thurgood Marshall, and after his retirement, justice clarence thomas who currently serves judge jackson when she becomes justice jackson will be only the third black person in over 230 years to serve on the united states supreme court and while you're at it and maybe this is the next question let's be clear that there have only been five women to ever serve on the united states supreme court and three are serving right now
0: so Judge Jackson is the first Black woman to be confirmed as a Supreme Court justice, but there's other firsts that she represents.
2: That's right. So she's the first federal defender to serve on the court, and that's critically important. John, when you think about it, the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution, what we call the Bill of Rights, all are designed to protect people from the tyranny of the state there are specific amendments that relate directly to protecting people who've been accused and alleged of committing crimes or suspected of having committed a wrong to protect them against the tyranny of the state and so the fact that she was a federal defender fits right in with what people who claim that they're originalist and textualist should actually celebrate and that That is protecting even the most vulnerable in society against sometimes the misdeeds of the state. So that's a first. It's also the case that she brings to the Supreme Court um, a background from having been from the South. Both of her parents are from the Jim Crow South. It's been decades since there's been a justice on the court who's hailed from the South. So that, too, happens to be very important. She graduated from public schools. She's not the only person on the court to have graduated from public schools. But that's really important, considering that the majority of Americans graduate from public schools. I want to talk also about the
0: treatment she received in that confirmation hearing from the Republicans.
2: What did you make of the way she was attacked? It was unbecoming behavior for such an august body. And let me put it in context, right? So for people who might think that this is always the dealings and that there are no rules around conduct in Congress, nothing could be further from the truth. Here's an example after the Clarence Thomas hearings, Justice Thomas hearings to become justice, he was judged then, and that grueling offensive behavior against Anita Hill, it spurred women running for office. Do you know that rules had to be changed so that women could actually wear pants, right? So there are lots of rules about conduct, about procedure, about decorum, about dress. This behavior was so unhinged by members of the Senate Judiciary Committee um, who yelled, you screamed, you behaved in ways that were just simply unbecoming and demeaning towards Judge Jackson. Now, she handled herself with incredible poise and dignity and grace during uh, that process. One disappointing aspect of this is that when one reflects back on the hearings that Uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had, we were able to see her brilliance. We were able to actually learn about what influenced her jurisprudence and what influenced her as a judge. She talked about how each year she would visit the jails in D.C. and take her clerks there because she never wanted to be far removed from the lives of people in whose liberty she held as a judge. All of that provided such great texture, uh, which we can still observe in the transcripts and by going online and watching these C-SPAN videos. But we got none of that, unfortunately, with these particular hearings, all culminating not only in attacks against Judge Jackson, but I think fundamentally showing their hand in terms of attacks on our democracy and the rule of law. And what did you make of the Democrats'
0: response to the Republican (laughs) treatment of Judge Jackson?
2: Mm Well, this connects with my concern related to the rules of decorum. We know that they exist. And unfortunately, there wasn't the use of the gavel, which was deserved at numerous times during um, the space of the hearings. There were Senate Judiciary Committee members that said, well, we're basically going to treat her as we remember Justice Kavanaugh being treated, but they were wrong. Judge Kavanaugh did not experience what she was put through and she was not accused by a credible witness of having sexually assaulted uh, or harassed anybody. But it was not the conduct that was experienced by Judge Kavanaugh, um, now Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Gorsuch, uh, she was put through fire, really. She had to walk through fire. And it wasn't until uh, Senator, junior senators, Cory Booker and Alex Padilla, who brought a little bit of humanity back to the process. And that was quite moving, I think, for um, a lot of Americans who later said that she was, you know, their favorite in coming through this process in more than a generation.
0: Well, I have a theory about the Republicans' treatment of Judge Jackson. They faced a huge problem in opposing her nomination because basically her record is flawless. She's always Mm. been excellent. And as a judge, she's been pretty much in the mainstream of things. She hasn't said defund the police. She hasn't said abolish the prisons. And it was pretty clear from the beginning she was going to be confirmed. So they were really kind of uh, desperate. And, of course, there is the fact that she was a Black woman and somehow a Black woman can be treated differently by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Am I going too far there?
2: You're not. Unfortunately, there was a level of spectacle connected with racism and sexism and misogyny. And lest people believe that that's perhaps exaggerating a bit, it's not. It it actually saddens me, you know, sometimes when when we have to reflect on these histories that should actually cause us all moments to pause. And I think that when we reflect on them honestly... You know, these histories include the spectacle and real pain. I don't make light of it when I say spectacle. I say spectacle for the depth of what it is, the spectacle of lynching, right? The spectacle of people taking photographs of themselves and mailing them to friends and family members, smiling, having picnics um, while black people's bodies um, languished in the air or were burned uh, to the bone nearly. Um, There's this spectacle that is memorialized in images of hoses and dogs being set upon Black people. Um, The spectacle of being in diners where then Black people are pulled off the seats and beaten because they're not to be welcomed at the lunch counters. Uh, The spectacle of uh, Ruby Bridges being escorted at five, six years old into school surrounded by guards for her protection, Um, the spectacle of the integration of, of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, while mobs of hundreds are outside demanding that at least one be brought out of the nine students so that they could be lynched. These are the realities of our nation. And behind all of this sat laws and sat legislators who thought that the very laws that folks were seeking to strike down were just, even though we understand how cruel they were, how racist they were, how sexist they were. And in many ways, what we saw was a kind of modern version of the spectacle. And we saw that even at the time of the votes, the failure to pay attention to the protocols, of Congress in terms of dress coming in without a tie, doing the kind of thumbs down, um, the weight that Senator Rand Paul, uh, you know, sort of made um, after the votes were in and the weight that was, you know, what was it, uh, 15, 20, 30 minutes, just the wait until his vote came through, all of that to show a kind of sneer, And of course, along the way, a smear of her and the accusations that somehow she is a groomer of pedophiles, that she is uh, soft on crime, that she cares little about people who are uh, victimized due to crime. The Senate Judiciary Committee um, and then the broader Senate showing such a level of disrespect and disregard that makes one question um, why they are in those positions at all. And in
0: addition to the abuse and the spectacle, there were some substantive legal arguments that her critics were making, which are pretty scary, especially the attack on her work as a public defender, which is about a larger
2: legal principle. That's right. So the United States incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. We incarcerate more women than any other country in the world, more than Russia, Thailand, China combined, and Mexico as well. And so in that backdrop, um, and we understand that it's important for our democracy and the rule of law, that there are people willing to be Uh, attorneys who represent people who are indigent and who are charged uh, with having committed crimes against the state. so both in terms of state public defenders and also federal public federal defenders who are representing um, people who are indigent, who are caught within the federal uh, criminal justice system. Those are very important jobs um, to have because justice does matter. Also, I think this is important to connect this conversation to what it's meant on the Supreme Court, where over time, within that space, there have been far more people who've been prosecutors than there have been people who represent individuals who are charged with crimes. And that, too, is, you know, is what makes it refreshing in terms of Judge Jackson becoming Justice Jackson and serving on the Supreme Court in the very near future, uh, because we've lost sight of the full scope of this process and what it's meant to represent.
0: And finally, although we didn't get to learn really anything about her judicial views or even much about her life The rules of decorum require that she simply listen to the people attacking her. She's not allowed to defend herself in uh, that situation. But even there, you've suggested in The Nation that we can learn some lessons from her conduct at that hearing.
2: That's right. We can learn a lot from her wit, her grit, her grace, her ability to be patient, her ability to be respectful, even in the face of scurrilous uh, attack, her ability to be able to pivot, her ability to drill down to the nuts and bolts of a matter, um, her ability to uh, not suffer fools. There was a point in which she said that she had answered the questions and she was no longer going to entertain questions that were uh, beneath the dignity of the office that she holds and the space in which she was in. All of what she demonstrated, including the way in which she was able to educate the Senate and the public in the spaces in which that was permissible, showed us what it is to actually be a judge, what it means to be a justice, to have the kind of temperament, composure, and ability to be able to effectively articulate, um, even in the face of people who are engaged in vile conduct, and behavior. And so it was a terrific lesson. And I think that one could juxtapose it to the conduct and behavior that we've seen in recent confirmation hearings. I mean, she demonstrated uh, without being snarky, without being snide, uh, without acting arrogant, uh, really showed what um, we should want out of people who ascend to the offices of being judge or justice.
0: Michelle Goodwin, you can read her piece, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's Confirmation Moves Us Closer to Building a Better and More Credible Supreme Court at TheNation.com. Thank you, Michelle. This is great.
2: It's always a pleasure to be on with you, John. Thank you for having me.
0: The same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. How the Supreme Court empowered the police and subverted civil rights. For that, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. He's written more than 200 law review articles, and he's a contributing writer for the opinion section of the LA Times. He's also written op-eds for the Washington Post, the New York Times, just in the last couple of months. National Jurist magazine named him the most influential person in legal education in the United States. He frequently argues appellate cases, including the Supreme Court. He's the author of 14 books, and now he's got a new one out, it's called Presumed Guilty, and it's terrific. We reached him today in Berkeley. Irwin, welcome back. Thank you, John. It's wonderful to talk with
3: you. Thanks for the kind words.
0: I think we all remember the summer of 2020, which saw the largest protest movement in American history, the Black Lives Matter protests about police violence against people of color, 10,000 demonstrations in hundreds of cities and towns, lasting for weeks and months, 15 million Americans participating. And that inspired hundreds of proposals for changing the police and the prisons, ranging from abolishing both of them to training the police differently to shifting many of their tasks to more qualified people. But you say the problem is not just racism in law enforcement, much of the blame belongs somewhere else. Where is that? I think the Supreme Court
3: is responsible for so many of the problems we have with regard to policing in the United States, including racialized policing. The reality is throughout American history, the Supreme Court has empowered the police. It has not enforced the constitutional provisions
0: that were meant to check the police. So let's start with The simplest issue, the one that opens uh, your book, Presumed Guilty, the police killing people with chokeholds. Back in 2014, Eric Garner told the New York police who had him in a chokehold, quote, I can't breathe. Six years later in 2020, George Floyd told the Minneapolis cop the same thing. Chokeholds have been challenged for decades. Uh, We record our show in L.A., which has been a center of litigation going back at least to the early 1980s. Uh, tell us about Adolph Lyons, whose challenge went all the way to the Supreme Court.
3: Adolph Lyons was a 24-year-old black man in Los Angeles who was stopped by police wearing a burnout taillight. An officer ordered Lyons out of his car. The officer slammed Lyons' hands above his head under the roof of the car. Lyons complained that the keys that he was holding were cutting to the skin of his palm. The officer then administered a chokehold on Lyons and rendered him unconscious. Lyons awoke, urinated and defecated. He was spitting blood and dirt. He was given a traffic citation and allowed to go. He sued the Los Angeles Police Department and the city of Los Angeles, seeking an injunction to stop officers from using the chokehold except if necessary to protect the officer's life or safety. The Supreme Court ruled five to four that Lyons could not sue for an injunction. The court said Lyons could not show that it was likely that he personally choked again in the future. The court said, person who wants an injunction has to show a likely future personal injury. So even though the chokehold was unconstitutional, no one ever could sue to stop its use because no one's ever gonna be able to prove that he or she is gonna be choked in the future. Had the Supreme Court ruled differently, Eric Garner, George Floyd wouldn't have been choked. Many others wouldn't
0: have died. So let's talk about rights. The the founding fathers were very concerned about rights of the accused. The Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments provide protections for people accused of crimes. Tell us about them.
3: Sure. The Fourth Amendment limits when the police can stop, detain, search a person— Meant to be only if there's probable cause. In general, there's gotta be a warrant from a judge. But the reality is the Supreme Court has made it that the police can stop virtually any person anytime and then subject them to a search. There was a case in nineteen ninety-six that discussed in the book, Wren versus the United States, involved some undercover police officers in DC who said a car was stopped at a stop sign an unusually long amount of time, 25 or 30 seconds. And the officers decided then to follow the car. In DC, undercover police officers aren't supposed to enforce traffic laws, but they saw the car turn without a signal, pulled the car over for that, ordered the driver and the passenger out, searched the car for drugs. There's no doubt that the traffic stop was just a pretext to search the car for drugs, but the Supreme Court said it didn't matter so long as the police have reasonable suspicion a traffic law has been violated, the police can do this. Well, the reality is that the police follow any driver for about 15 minutes. They'll observe the driver go a minute over a mile over the speed limit or change lanes without a turn signal or my favorite not stop quite long enough at the stop sign. They can order the driver and passengers out and they can do a search. It's why it's not hyperbole to say that the police really can. Stop and search any of us at almost any time.
0: The Fifth and Sixth Amendments also provide protections for people accused of crimes.
3: The Fifth Amendment, for example, has the privilege against self-incrimination. The Supreme Court famously in 1966 in Miranda v. Arizona said, when police are questioning somebody in custody, it's inherently coercive. And yet the reality is the Supreme Court has not provided protections against coercion and that the Supreme Court has approved things like the police tricking people into confessing. The police can say to somebody, we found your DNA at the scene, even though it's a lie. And if you confess to us, it'll go easier on you. Or the person you were with has confessed and blamed it on you. Be easier on you if you confess too. all of that, the Supreme Court has said is permissible.
0: So the police are allowed to lie to you when you are being interrogated. This comes after they tell you that you have a right to remain silent and that you have a right to an attorney. Everybody knows from watching TV, you have a right to remain silent, you have a right to an attorney. Surely the Supreme Court enforces violations of those rights.
3: No. There's a case that is discussed in the book where the police were questioning somebody and said, if you want a lawyer we can't provide you one until you're tried in court. That is flat out wrong, and it's against the law, but the Supreme Court allowed the confession to come in, even though the person is told there's no right to a lawyer. Or a very famous case I discuss in the book, police were questioning somebody for almost three hours, and the person was completely silent. And after about two hours and 45 minutes, the officer said to the person, do you believe in God? And he gave a one word answer, yes. They said, do you pray to God? one-word answer, yes. Will you pray to God for forgiveness for these murders? He said, yes. That was the key evidence that led to his conviction. And of course, under Miranda versus Arizona, you have the right to remain silent. He exercised that by being silent. And yet the Supreme Court said he waived his rights and could be convicted.
0: And what's the Sixth Amendment?
3: The Sixth Amendment protects people when they're tried in court. And one very important aspect of the Sixth Amendment, but it also relates to due process under the Fifth Amendment, concerns how police conduct identification procedures, like the lineups we see on TV shows or in movies. The work, especially of the Innocence Projects, has shown that many innocent people have been convicted because of inaccurate eyewitness identifications. In fact, a very large percentage of the people have been exonerated because of DNA evidence, turns out were convicted because of erroneous eyewitness identification. And we know from social psychologists that cross-racial eyewitness identifications are particularly flawed. People are not good at identifying those of other races. Since 1986, and I picked that because it's when William Rehnquist became Chief Justice, through today, there's only been one Supreme Court case that's even dealt with the issue of eyewitness identification, and that came down on the side of the police. And so the result is we have police procedure that we know that's proven to lead to the conviction of innocent people and the supreme court has completely ignored the problem.
0: Now there are cases where the police departments conclude that their members have engaged in misconduct and that creates the opportunity for remedies from for the victims. If the police violate your rights, you have the right to compensation. It's a big part of criminal law practice. The city of L.A. paid $6 million to victims of police violence in 2019. In 2016, the city of Cleveland agreed to pay $6 million to a single family, the family of Tamir Rice, that 12-year-old boy who was shot and killed by a police officer in a park in 2014. Surely the Supreme Court has helped victims of egregious police misconduct win this kind of compensation. Just the opposite.
3: The Supreme Court has developed doctrines that make it very difficult to sue, that make the instances that you refer to truly the exception. To start with, the Supreme Court has said that some government officials, including police officers, at times, have absolute immunity. That means they can never be sued for money damages. A police officer who testifies in court perjuriously lies under oath and it to the conviction of an innocent person, cannot be sued for money damages. So even if the police officer lies, it leads to a conviction of an innocent person, and the person spends years in prison, the police officer can't be sued for money damages, the victim is out of luck. But apart from where there's absolute immunity, all other government officials, when they're sued for money damages, have what's called qualified immunity. And it's been interesting someone who's taught about qualified immunity for over 40 years to see it now become part of the popular discourse. The number of times that I've given speeches to non-lawyers and they ask me questions about qualified immunity. Qualified immunity means that a police officer or any government officer may be liable only if the officer violates clearly established law that every reasonable officer should know. The Supreme Court has said, there has to be a prior case on point that makes the conduct unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court has said, and I'm quoting verbatim, qualified immunity protects all but the plainly incompetent police officer. Mm. Qualified immunity functionally is often the same as absolute immunity.
0: Well, your book, Presume Guilty, reminds us that there was a time when the Supreme Court set limits on police violence and police conduct. This was a time when I was a kid growing up, and I learned to respect and admire the Supreme Court. That was the Warren Court, starting in the mid-50s. A lot of us grew up thinking of the Supreme Court as the place you get justice because of the Warren Court. Remind us what the Warren Court did on all these questions.
3: The Warren Court began in 1953, as you said, and continued to 1969. But there was actually only a liberal majority on the Warren Court from 1962, when Arthur Goldberg replaced Felix Frankfurter until 1969. Those seven years were a time when the Supreme Court, unlike any era in history, did seek to control the police. Examples, Miranda versus Arizona that we talked about was decided in 1966. It says the police have to give the warnings that you refer to for questioning somebody in custody. Or Gideon versus Wainwright, 1963, led to the famous book and movie Gideon's Trumpet a person being tried for a crime in state court with a possible prison sentence has to provide an attorney, including a state paid for one, person can't afford one. Or a less well-known case, in United States versus Wade in 1967, the court said, after somebody has been indicted, when there's a lineup procedure, the suspect has the right to have an attorney present to make sure the police aren't being unduly suggestive. But John, even the Warren court gave in to public pressure. One of the worst Supreme Court cases in terms of leading to racialized policing was a Warren court decision in 1968, Terry versus Ohio. It said that police can stop somebody, frisk somebody without needing to have probable cause. involved a white police officer in Cleveland seeing two black men walking back and forth down a public sidewalk. Just for doing that, he stopped them, frisked them, found they had guns. And the Supreme Court eight to one said it was constitutional for the police to do that. And the eight included Earl Warren, William Brennan, Thurgood Marshall, and the other liberal justices.
0: Well, your book leads to an unavoidable conclusion when it comes to police misconduct, police violence, police violating people's constitutional rights. We are not going to get justice from the courts. In We know that in the Senate, Republicans will block any new federal laws that, for instance, are currently proposed in the House right now. So what can we do? It's interesting. I signed the contract to write
3: this book in January 2019. In early June of 2020, after the tragic death of George Floyd, my editor got in touch and said, how soon can you finish this? (laughs) And I turned the manuscript in at the end of October of 2020, and when I wrote the last chapters, I was so optimistic that all of the attention on police misconduct would lead to meaningful reform. A bill had been introduced and passed the House that would have instituted many important changes, including prohibiting police from using the chokehold. But as you say, it stalled in the Senate because of the filibuster. But state legislatures can adopt reforms The California legislature has just passed a bill that would keep police officers from being able to go to one department or another when they get discharged for misconduct and in essence would create a registry of police officers and allow them to be decertified. That's an important change. Cities, police commissions can bring about changes. Some have on their own prohibited the use of the chokehold by officers. Los Angeles Police Commission has done that. Other cities can do that. Some cities in North Carolina adopted a policy that when police search based on consent, they have to get written agreement and they found a tremendously decreased consent searches. And to be honest, police lying about having had consent when it didn't exist. Cities can do that. State Supreme courts can interpret state constitutions to provide protections where the U.S. Constitution doesn't. And there is a federal statute that allows the Justice Department to sue when there's a pattern and practice of police violation of civil rights. That was used successfully to bring about some really important changes in the LAPD and in some other cities, and we need the Justice Department to use that tool.
0: You and I both live and work in California, America's most populous state, America's state, most democratic state, where the Democrats have complete control of the state legislature as well as the governor's office. How are we doing in California in the wake of Black Lives Matter on setting limits on police abuse of power?
3: Surprisingly, not very well. Let's take the legislative session that followed immediately from the death of George Floyd. Many bills were introduced into the California legislature and none got adopted that session. More were introduced this session and not very much got through Though Some did. There are so many things that could be done by state statute to reform police departments in the state. And what are
0: your priorities on that front?
3: Well, I would start by reforming the state civil rights law, the Bain Act, that would allow for suits against police when they violate people's rights. As I said, it's very hard to win a federal civil rights suit, particularly because of the immunity doctrines. I would like to see reforms of the state civil rights law to accomplish things like increase the liability of cities when their officers violate people's rights. It hasn't got adopted by the California legislature. I'd like to see California adopt a law that requires that every police officer record the race of every person stopped. And the reason for that is studies have shown that when the police just have to record the race, and they know they have to do so, It decreases racial profiling, lessens the likelihood somebody stopped just for driving while black or driving while brown. I'd like to see the state outlaw some dangerous police practices. I'd like to see the state, for the entire California, outlaw police use of the chokehold. I'd like to see California eliminate so-called no-knock warrants, except in the most extreme circumstances. A no-knock entry by the police was they come in without announcing that there's a police. And of course, that's dangerous for the police and those who are present. That's what led to the death of Breonna Taylor. The police entered without announcing. A man who was with her thought it was an intruder and took out his gun. The police saw the gun, started shooting, and Breonna Taylor got killed in the crossfire. We can limit the use of no-knock warrants in California by state law or by city ordinance or by police commission action.
0: Another one I'm interested in is the creating a state registry of police officers who've been found guilty of misconduct by their own departments. That's turned out to be a hard thing to achieve.
3: And it's essential. One of the things that I was stunned to learn 20 years ago is that there was no registry in Los Angeles to track the disciplinary violations of police officers. You would think there'd be a file where if an officer had been disciplined for misconduct, We could go and see what it was. Now, the consent decree between the Justice Department and the city of Los Angeles created such a system, but we don't have it statewide. And until this recent bill, we don't have a way of decertifying a police officer who engages in misconduct in one department and then just wants to go work at another department and doesn't reveal the misconduct that led to the firing.
0: Erwin Chemerinsky, his new book is Presumed Guilty. How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. Irwin, thank you for this book and thanks for talking with us today.
3: Oh, thank you so much, John. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you.
0: That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo.